Thank you. You can be seated. Man, isn't that exciting? I tell you, we don't really fully appreciate all that God did. I've lately thought about, you know, if I was to make uh, the greatest sacrifice I could, sacrifice one of my sons, my wife, or whatever for somebody else, it would be one thing if you did it and they were forever grateful. But then to think about how that if you made that kind of a sacrifice and most people didn't even give it any heed at all or mocked it, uh, man, I'm just not sure I love anybody enough <laughs> to do that for them. But God has done things for us and the very, the person at their very best who loves God with all of their heart, it's still not sufficient. Uh, thanks for all that he's done for us and yet the vast majority of people don't even pay any attention to it and yet Jesus died for them just as much as he died for any of us that's awesome I tell you God is wonderful thank God for Jesus all right I've been sharing about how to dwell in God's presence and I first of all started talking about that this is one of the missing elements in most people's lives, most Christians. They don't dwell in the presence of God. They visit there. They go there occasionally. And yet we used specifically Psalms 91, he that dwells in the secret place of the Most High. That's the one that is going to see all of these blessings that Psalms 91 talks about. In uh, Isaiah 26, 3, the Lord will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon him because he trusts in him. It has to be a constant. That word stayed is talking about you lay hold of it. And we used a lot of other scriptures, uh, Joshua 1, 8 and Psalms chapter 1. Uh, we use the scriptures in John 15 about abiding in him. And if he, we abide in him and his words abide in us, then we can ask what we will and it shall be done for us. So the first time was just talking about how so many promises of God are dependent on abiding in him. And you know, everything in this whole conference has really fit and gone along with this. Barry, what he ministered on Tuesday morning was powerful about this exact same thing and how God's already done his part, but we can oppose what God has done. We have to cooperate. Uh, Paul told me that what he's going to minister tomorrow, it's going to be like he pinched it from me, but he said, God spoke this to him before this meeting started. And so I know that it's going to go along with it. What Greg ministered this morning was powerful and it goes perfectly with everything we were talking about because he was talking about finding your identity totally in the Lord and just, you know, rejecting all of these other things and just focusing on what God was doing. So all of these things, everything that has been said really has been to draw us to a place to where we just dwell in the presence of God. Last night I used Luke chapter 24 to talk about that. So what I want to do tonight is just continue to talk about this and specifically to talk about how that you have to have the right opinion of God, the right revelation of God to keep your mind stayed upon him. If you keep your mind stayed on God, but if it's been tainted by religion so that you think that God is angry at you, are displeased with you, then keeping your mind stayed on God in that frame of mind will actually do you damage. The scripture says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And sad to say, there are a lot of Christians that believe that God exists. They believe that God is with them constantly, but they believe that God is displeased. They live in a constant state of feeling uh, like they are 
condemned and displeased, displeasing to God. And you have to renew your mind on that. You know, some of you have heard me say this, but on November the 4th, last year, 2014, at three o'clock in the morning, the Lord woke me up out of a, a sound sleep and I just sat up and the Lord spoke to me and he said, this is why I've raised you up is to change people's opinion of me. And as their opinion changes, their life will change and then they in turn will go change the world. And that really does summarize pretty much what we're all about is to change people's opinion of God and to let you know that God is a good God and God is not angry at you, that he has placed all of your sin and all of his displeasure and anger for your sin upon Jesus. He's not mad at you. He's not even in a bad mood. And God is never going to be angry at you or rebuke you. Did you know that those statements, that's straight out of Isaiah chapter 54, verse 9. And yet most Christianity does not believe that. I can guarantee you since the Supreme Court decision last Friday, there are pulpits all around the world, especially here in America, saying that because of this, the wrath of God is coming on this nation. God is going to punish this nation. You know what that's saying? That God will be angry with you and he will rebuke you. Isaiah chapter 54 verse 9 says this is as the waters of Noah unto me is for as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no more go over the earth so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee nor rebuke thee. And then the next verse says if you'd put that up there it says for the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed but my loving kindness shall not depart from thee neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. This is saying he would never be angry with us. He would never rebuke us. And the covenant of peace would never be removed. Pike's peak will be removed before God's peace will ever be removed is what he's saying. And yet the average Christian doesn't believe that. The average Christian believes that if they mess up, that God's wrath is coming upon them. And there's varying interpretations of it. The ultra Pentecostal will believe every time you sin, you lose your salvation and you are backslid and you got to get born again, again. But a lesser interpretation, but the same principle is that no, you wouldn't lose your salvation, but God won't answer your prayer. God won't bless you. He'll take his joy away. He'll take his blessings away. He may put sickness on you to punish you. He might cause your business to fail. That's completely contrary to all of these promises. If you take those promises in context, Isaiah chapter 53 is the great passage about how he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. And he just talks about all that. And then Isaiah chapter 54 where those verses we read came from is the results of Jesus' atonement for us and he will never be angry with us, never rebuke us again. I know some of you are thinking, well, I don't know about that, but I can guarantee you God's been angry. I felt so miserable. I felt the punishment and the wrath of God. You haven't. What you felt is the religious condemnation. The law ministered wrath. Romans chapter four says that. The law is what released the wrath of God and you are not under the law. But sad to say, most of religion today is still preaching the Old Testament law instead of the New Testament grace. 
And because of this, we inflict condemnation and guilt and separation on ourself. And yet God is never going to leave you nor forsake you. God is never withdrawn from you. God is never the one that takes his joy away. God is never the one who shows displeasure for you. It's quiet in this Presbyterian church. I know some of you are thinking, well, man, this just doesn't seem right. Let me point out some things here. Look in Isaiah chapter 59. This is just one passage of scripture, but it really does kind of summarize the way that God dealt with people under the Old Testament. And one of the reasons for the confusion and people misunderstanding the true nature of God is from the Bible. And I'm not saying that critical of the Bible. I believe that the Bible is infallible. I believe it is the perfect will of God. But there is an old covenant and a new covenant. And it's amazing how people just somehow or another mix them all together and come up with one covenant. It's different. God dealt with people differently in the Old Testament than he deals with us today. His wrath ruled and was released in the Old Testament. Now, there was also a lot of grace. Once you understand this and begin to understand the word of God, you can see the grace of God all through the Bible woven in throughout there. But the Old Testament was primarily a covenant of wrath. Man, I'm not going to take the time to show you the scriptures, but I could quote you dozens of scriptures that without the law, there was no transgression, that the law ministered wrath, the law brought death, the law was the strength of sin, the law ministered death and condemnation. There's scriptures for every single statement that I've made. That was the Old Testament law. And as a whole, the wrath of God was poured out under the Old Testament law. The reason we have a new covenant is because even though God was holy and he had to judge sin, and I believe it was appropriate to show his wrath and rejection of sin in the Old Testament because that was the true holiness of God against our unholiness. But it really wasn't the heart of God. I'm going to show you some scriptures tonight that God is love. And his real heart was to forgive us. But Jesus had to come and pay for that forgiveness. And before Jesus came, we were under an old covenant that instead of the mercy and the goodness of God being released, the wrath of God was released. Now we're under a different covenant. And people have not made a transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. As a whole, the majority of the body of Christ, well-meaning, well-intentioned people are preaching the Old Testament law and giving a representation of God that is misrepresenting what Jesus has done for us. And this kind of summarizes it right here in Isaiah chapter 59. In verse one, it says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue hath muttered perverseness. And it just goes on and continues to list things. But this says your sins separate you from God. And did you know that that is a true statement before you make Jesus your Lord? Before 
Jesus died for the sins of the world, people were separated from God because of sin. Not because God wasn't able to move and give them the things that they needed, but their sin separated them from God. And as a whole, most of Christianity is still stuck right here. Not understanding that Jesus forever changed the way things are done. Jesus changed the covenant. And it's not like God just all of a sudden said, all right, I'm tired of judging everybody for their sin. I'm going to start being merciful. That's not what he did. God is holy. Sin has a payment for sin. Romans chapter six, verse 23 says the wages of sin is death. Sin has to be paid for. The Lord told Adam in the day you eat of this forbidden fruit, you will die. They didn't die physically, but they died spiritually. They were separated from God. There was a separation that took place between them and God. And that's what death is. The physical death of our bodies is just the final end result consequence of being separated from God and from this life that he originally intended us to have. And so sin had a consequence. Sin has a payment. And God didn't just one day say, I'm going to quit charging the human race for sin. No, that's not what he did. He paid for sin. But instead of punishing us, he sent his own son and Jesus became a man. He's called the Lamb of God in the Old Testament. See, this was pictured. There was a picture of it and God kept saying that sin's got to be judged. The payment for sin is death. And every time a person sinned, they had to offer an animal sacrifice. God gave us the ability of instead of you dying every time you sin, you could lay your hands on this animal and transfer, in a sense, symbolically, transfer your sins to that animal. And then they would slit the throat of that animal, kill it and burn it because that's what you deserve. That's what I deserved. But there is a picture of salvation coming. But it says in the book of Hebrews that no animal could ever atone for sin. It was only a type and a shadow of Jesus coming. But in the new covenant, we don't have just a type and a shadow. We have the sinless son of God becoming a physical human being. And he bore our sins and all of God's wrath. Man, I'm saying some important things right here. I would like to expound on it, but I'm trying to give an overview and I have to force myself to keep from expounding. But you ought to go read my footnote at Luke 12, I mean, John 12, 32. It's awesome. Amen. All of God's wrath came upon Jesus. Not a token amount of it, not a little bit of it. All of God's wrath. All of it, not just up until the time that you accept Jesus as your savior. And then after you're born again, you got to get every sin confessed and under the blood, but all of your sin, past, present, and even sin that you haven't committed yet was placed upon Jesus and God paid for all sin, past, present, and future through the death of the Lord Jesus. He released his wrath on Jesus. And because of that, there isn't any wrath left in God for your sin. Again, this goes contrary to the majority of Christianity today. They're still saying, oh yeah, God may have forgiven you to a point that maybe you won't go to hell, but you can't expect God to love you and fellowship with you. People say God won't use a dirty vessel. 
God hadn't got any other kind of vessel to use. God won't fellowship with you if you got sin in your life. All of us have some type of sin. Maybe it's not the sin of commission where you go out and just deliberately disobey, but all of us fall short of being the person we're supposed to be. None of us love our mate as much as we're supposed to. None of us lay down our life as much as we're supposed to. None of us seek God the way that we're supposed to. You may be doing it better than you've ever done or better than I'm doing, but all have sinned come short of the glory of God. And just because you got saved, you are not sinless. Amen. I had somebody, I was doing a radio interview not too long ago and this subject came up and the host was talking about something and anyway, I said, so are you saying that you don't sin? And he says, that's right. Since I got born again, I have never sinned. And I said, you know what? I hadn't really got much to say to you. I said, I've never talked to anybody like that. But this guy thought that he had never sinned. Well, he just sinned right then. Amen. <laughs> But all of us are falling short and the good news is, and see the reason I'm bringing all of this out, if you're gonna dwell in the presence of God, you've got to properly understand how God has paid for your sins and has opened up access to fellowship with him through Jesus. And you've gotta get rid of your guilt and your condemnation that most of us live under. And sad to say, if you were to take what I've been saying about just keeping your mind stayed upon God and focused on him and not having times where you go in and you have these, you know, special prayer times. And again, don't misunderstand. I'm not against a devotion if that's not all that there is to it. If a devotion is just a special time that you spend. But then if you have a devotion and walk out of it and the rest of the day, you don't keep your mind stayed on God and you do whatever you want to, your devotion is useless. If it's not, if it doesn't end at the devotion, if it doesn't end at a Sunday service, well, then that's okay. But if, but God intended for us to dwell in his presence and to do that, you have to keep your mind stayed on the true God and relate to him by love and understand his goodness towards you. You have to be focused on his goodness, on his forgiveness. You have to have an attitude of thanksgiving and love. If you are thinking on him in the sense of, oh God, you, I'm so unholy, how could you love me? And if that's the way that you keep your mind stayed on him thinking wrong thoughts, then it's gonna minister condemnation and guilt to you. So you've got to have the right opinion of God. And I'm telling you that this opinion in Isaiah 59 is the traditional um, common opinion of most Christians today because they haven't understood the new covenant and that Jesus paid for all of our sins. He didn't just take a token payment. He has wiped out the sin debt. God is not mad at you. He's not angry. He's not even in a bad mood. God it just thinks you are absolutely awesome. And this is what you have to focus on is focus on Father, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that by the blood of Jesus, I am now righteous just as if I'd never sinned. That all of my sin, past, present, and even future sin has been taken care of. Now I'm gonna expound on that, but let me just say something because I know that there's people sitting here thinking, so you're just saying sin doesn't matter, that you can just go live in sin. You think you can go do anything. No, that's not what I'm saying. 
Over in 1 John chapter 3, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knows us not because it knew him not. Then verse 2 says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And then verse 3 says, Every man, not some, but every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. If you understand God's love for you, if you receive what I'm saying, it will cause every man or woman to purify yourself even as he is pure. A person who takes the things that I teach on grace and say, man, this is wonderful. We can go live in sin and live like the devil because God forgave all of our sin. You ought to get born again. <laughs> you don't have this love in you. If you really understood what I'm saying and understood how much God loved you, it would cause you to live holier accidentally than you ever have on purpose before. You can tell a person that truly understands the grace of God because the grace of God empowers you to live a holy life. Your holiness doesn't make God love you, but understanding how much God loves you will make you live holy. And a person who is out there just saying, man, I can go live in sin because God loves me and he's not mad at me. You don't have this hope in you or you would purify yourself even as he is pure. Now, I'm not saying that this takes away uh, the fact that you can make mistakes, that you can come short. And as a matter of fact, if you're under religion, man, I'm saying some big things here that I hadn't got time to explain, but I'm just going to say it anyway. But if you're under religion and if you're still under the law, the Bible says that the law made sin come alive. And if you are living under guilt and condemnation, thinking that you have to earn God's favor, it actually makes you a worse sinner. It's counterintuitive. Most people will think, Man, this will stop people from sinning if you preach on adultery and preach against it and preach that the wrath of God's gonna come on you. It's just the opposite. The law was sent to make sin come alive on the inside of you, Romans chapter seven. It says the strength of sin is the law, 1 Corinthians 15, 30, what? 35 or 36. Sin comes alive. It says in uh, Romans chapter six, I believe it's verse 14 or 15. It says, you sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under the law, but under grace. You can turn that around and say, if you are under the law instead of grace, then sin will have dominion over you. The law actually strengthens sin. It's counter to what most people think. But if you go to preaching on don't commit adultery and God's angry at you if you commit adultery. People will wind up committing adultery. The law actually makes you lust for what's forbidden. This is why God gave the law. The law didn't break the dominion of sin. Contrary to that, I just quoted you that verse. It says sin will not have dominion over you for you are not under the law. If you're under the law, the law gave sin dominion over you. It strengthened sin. Why would God give something that would strengthen sin? Because we were already beat by sin, but we make the mistake of comparing ourselves among ourselves and measuring ourselves by ourselves. And the scripture says that's not wise. And so we would look around and find somebody and think, well, I'm holier than they are. And so God's got to accept me. You, hear, you still hear this today. People will say, if the hypocrites down there at church make it, I'll make it. 
thing that's wrong with that logic is the hypocrites at church aren't going to make it. <laughs> but see, we compare ourselves with other people. And that's not the way that it's intended to be. So how did God wake you up that, hey, you've sinned and come short of the glory of God. You don't need to try and earn God's favor. You just need to cry out for mercy and grace. How did he do it? He says, you think you're good. You think you're holy. You think I have to accept you because you're good compared to other people. Let me show you my standard. And he says, thou shalt not and sin came alive on the inside of you. You begin to lust for the very thing that you couldn't do. Did you know, even as a little kid, I understood this because I'd, you know, try and get, I remember one time trying to get a friend of mine walk across a log that was across a creek and I knew he's going to fall in if he did. That's why I was daring him to do it. I said, walk across it. Oh no, I'm not going to. And anyway, all I had to do is say, you can't do it. And you know what? The moment you say you can't do it, something rises up and says, bless God, I will do it. Amen. <laughs> you know, I ran a race right here in Woodland Park many years ago. It was a 6K race and uh, I had turned in a personal best. It was the fastest time I'd ever done. And I was about a quarter of a mile from the finish line. And um, most of you don't know me, but I am a competitor. Amen. Uh, it's true. <laughs> Ask Paul. <laughs> I'm not a sore loser, but my dad taught me that second place is first loser. <laughs> and I've never come in second in anything that I could win at. I mean, when my kids were little and we played tiddlywinks, I beat them as bad as I possibly could. I told my kids, if you ever beat me, you beat me. I've never thrown a game of nothing in my life. So anyway, I was running and I was about from here to the back wall from the finish line and a guy started to pass me and he could tell that I was trying to keep up with him and I just didn't have it. I was wasted. And he got a few steps in front of me and he looked over his shoulder and real sarcastic says, you could do better than that. And when he said that, I mean, it's just like the incredible Hulk. Man, my adrenaline rose up and... I passed that guy like he was in reverse. And I beat him across the finish line. And when we got there, I I don't know where it came from. It nearly killed me. Jamie had to drag me out of the way. But I'm saying that, see, that's the principle. Somebody says, I'm really, I've got this sin beat. All God's got to do is say, you got it beat, thou shalt not. And you will start lusting for the very thing you're told that you can't have. You know, if some of you don't even like chocolate, I, Michael Moore, I don't see him down here, but he says he doesn't like chocolate. I'm not sure that that, you don't like, I don't believe it. <laughs> see, we lie all the time. Just don't be faithful. But anyway... Even if Greg doesn't like chocolate, if I was to say, Greg, I'll give you a million dollars if you for one year won't lust for chocolate. Now he may not even like chocolate. He may never think about it. But if I was to tie some reward to it and say, you can't lust for it. And I'm not only going to look at your actions, but I know your thoughts. And if you'd go to desire, and if I said, thou shalt not have chocolate for one year and dangled this reward, I guarantee even if he doesn't like chocolate, he'd go to thinking about it. He'd go to thinking about the thing I told him he couldn't have and he'd go to lusting for it. 
God knew our nature. And so that's why he gave the law is not to set you free from sin because you can't overcome sin through your own effort and through keeping some standard. But God gave the law to show you how sin was hiding and dormant. He fleshed it out in the open. And when he said, thou shalt not, something rose up and said, bless God, I shall. And so I say all of this to say, am I saying that you should just go live in sin because now God has paid the price? No, sin has consequence. And that Old Testament law was a proper judgment on sin. You know, I've already, I'm going to say this quickly. I hate to bring these things up, but it just applies. But you know, uh, I've had some Christians come up and talk about since the Supreme Court decision about homosexuality, there's been Christians that have been um, saying things about that if God really hates homosexuality, and if you're going to use scripture to say that, now, let me understand, understand what I'm saying. I didn't say he hated the homosexual. He loves people, but it, it's a sin. He hates the act of homosexuality. And they say, if you're going to say that, well, then why don't you just turn over to the Old Testament and do what it says and kill them? That's what the Old Testament says to do is to kill them. And then don't stop there. It says, if your children are rebellious, you kill them too. And if a person goes out and commit adultery, the Bible prescribes killing them. And I've heard people use that logic to say, see, we need to just reject that. The Bible is out of date. We now have something different. And they just reject it and say that the Bible is wrong. I don't believe that the Bible is wrong. But you know what that was doing? It's similar to when a person today has some kind of a terminal disease, like if you have a cancer or something in you. We do terrible things to people that have cancer. You cut off parts of their body you give them radiation and chemotherapy, which will kill a well person. We do these terrible things. Why? Because we, it's, a, it's something that if it's left unchecked, it'll kill the entire person. And so we'll sacrifice a part of our body in order to kill that disease. Well, these things, uh, it says over in 1 Samuel chapter 15 that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And so in the old covenant before Jesus came and before he broke sin's dominion over us and paid the price, rebellion was like idolatry and witchcraft. Rebellion's demonic. And when children were, began to be rebellious and if they were corrected and wouldn't give place to it, it led to just literally letting the devil have free run in their life. And in the old covenant, you couldn't get a person born again. They couldn't be delivered from it. And so it was like a cancer that had to be cut out or it would have infected the entire society. Under the new covenant, we have an antidote for this. It's called Jesus and being saved and forgiveness of sins. And people's sins can be forgiven today. So we don't kill our children if they're rebellious. And it's not because God somehow or another changed. Rebellion is bad and it's bad now and it was bad then. But there is an antidote for it today that there wasn't under the old covenant. So in the old covenant, 
similar to the way we cut off a part of the body. God just killed people because it was good for the whole of the human race rather than letting these things run rampant. And that's the reason he prescribed death for adultery and death for homosexuality and rebellion. But under the new covenant, you can be forgiven. And so we don't kill homosexuals. We don't hate homosexuals, but we, we haven't changed the standard. And so the Old Testament law was accurate. It revealed God's wrath against sin. But there is a different uh, covenant that we're under today. We aren't under the wrath of God. We're now under the grace and the mercy of God. God hasn't changed what's right and wrong, but he's changed the penalty because he placed the punishment for our sin upon Jesus. And because of that, we extend mercy towards people that are living in sin. But man, this is one of the reasons that most people, they don't like keeping their mind stayed on God because the way they see God is bad. They think God is imputing their sin unto them. Let me use another passage over here in 2 Corinthians. This is the antidote uh, to, to Isaiah chapter 59. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 is where it says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new and all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath committed unto us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is to talk about bring back into harmony or to make friendly. And it says that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. How did he make us friendly? How did he bring us back into relationship with him? It goes on to tell you in this same verse, he did it by not imputing their trespasses unto them. The word impute is a accounting term. It means to record, to put on the books. And so the way that he made us friendly to him and reconciled us, he didn't impute our sin unto us. But it's not that simple. It's not just that he says, all right, I'm not gonna impute sin unto you. What he did was take your sin and my sin and he imputed it to Jesus. It goes on to say in verse 21, it says, for he hath made him, God the Father hath made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God took our sin and imputed it to Jesus, laid it upon Jesus. Boy, that's a big statement. And again, that's one of these things that we need to be meditating on. If you want to dwell in the presence of the Almighty, you need to think about this and just milk it for all it's worth and turn to scriptures and just go over and over and over this because it's such a big statement. I don't think any of us fully understand this. But Jesus didn't just take a token amount of sin. Jesus became sin is what this says. He became sin. Jesus became a liar, a thief, an adulterer, a homosexual, a murderer. And I know some people think, well, that's blasphemy. He didn't do it himself, but he took all of those sins upon him. And it wasn't just in symbolism. He literally became that. And that's the reason that God the Father, he, on the cross, he cried out and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason God forsook Jesus is because he became sin for us and God, 
Our sin separated us from God and for Jesus to be our substitute and to pay our price, he had to become separated from God. God forsook him the way that he should have forsaken you and me, but he took all of his wrath and placed it upon Jesus. And Jesus literally experienced separation from his father. He experienced his father's wrath so that you and I don't have to experience it. And if you still feel guilty, if you still feel that you've somehow or another got to pay and that, you know, you can't just walk back into the presence of God, you failed, you sinned, you did something wrong. And it, it would just be wrong for you to walk in as if nothing had happened. And you say, I've got to suffer. You may not put it in those words, but did you know that most people think this way? That's the reason that when you mess up, you'll ask the Lord to forgive you, but then it might take a week before you feel like you're back into his graces again. You have to suffer for it. You got, you know, that's maybe more subtle and not everybody recognizes that, but I've literally met people who came to my meetings. I met this one guy who opened up his sleeves and showed me scars all over his hands and elbows and stuff. And then he pulled up his pants leg and showed me his knees. And he had scars because in South America, in uh, uh, Mexico, uh, he had, during Lent, crawled three miles over broken glass to do penance for his sin. We still do the same thing in the United States. People uh, deny themselves during Lent and do something and atone and beat themselves up and hurt themselves, in a sense, trying to atone for their sins. You know what that is? That's just total disregard for Jesus saying he didn't pay at all. I've also got to suffer. You don't have to suffer. You know what really honors God is when you mess up and sin big time and then you realize it and say, oh God, I'm so sorry. Thank you that you've forgiven me. And you just walk boldly into the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That's what honors God. But for you to come in and spend weeks or months or hours, oh God, I'm so sorry and just belly aching and complaining isn't, you, you aren't recognizing that Jesus paid the total price for your sin. You feel that you've got to pay for it. Now, I'm not talking about you liking sin and acting like nothing happened. There's nothing wrong with you going and saying, God, I really messed up and I'm so sorry. I didn't want to do this. I hate to disrespect you, to put out a bad witness and stuff. And there's a place for repentance and saying that you're wrong, but you suffering for your sin is wrong. Jesus suffered everything. He suffered total rejection and separation from his father so that you don't have to. And so Jesus became sin for us and it's this law of double jeopardy. You know, if you were arrested and tried for something and then punished and put in prison and then you were released, if you paid your debt, they could never try you for that again. I don't care how guilty you were the first time. Once that debt is paid, you can't pay for it twice. And Jesus paid for our sins. And in a sense, we are putting him in double jeopardy every time we suffer for our sins and feel like, God, you couldn't love somebody like me because I've messed up. No, if you accepted the atonement of the Lord Jesus, Jesus has suffered that separation and all of the things that you should have suffered, he suffered it for you. So see, you got to have the right opinion of God. You got to recognize that God is love. And you've got to 
When you mess up and get rid of this sin consciousness, it says over in Romans chapter eight, verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation uh, to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. There is no condemnation. The word no there is an absolute unqualified negative. It means none, absolutely none condemnation. You know what the word, con you know, it's a big religious word, but you know, another way to understand condemnation, like if you go over into England, they sit there and they say, this building is condemned and, um, or excuse me, derelict. It's here that we say it's condemned. It's in England. They call it derelict. I'm sorry. I got that backwards. So anyway, it's here. I forgot where I was. <laughs> and we say this building is condemned. You know what that means? That means it's not fit for use. So that's a little layman's definition of what condemnation means. If you feel unfit for use, you're condemned. If you believe that God can do miracles, that he said these signs will follow them that believe, and you're a believer, and if you believe all of these things are possible, but you don't have boldness and confidence that if you lay hands on the sick, they're going to recover, then another way of saying that is you're condemned. You don't feel fit for use. You don't doubt that God could do it. You just doubt that he'll do it through you because you don't feel worthy. That is condemnation. And there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet the Bible said, man, again, I could spend hours on every one of these points. But 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 says, calls the law a ministry of condemnation. That's what the law did was condemn you. If you did 99 things out of 100 right, the law would never issue you a compliment over the thing you did right. It would condemn you over all the wrong. Conversely, if you did 99 things right and one thing wrong, did I say that right? Anyway, here's what I meant to say. If you do 99 things right and one thing wrong, the uh, law would never issue a compliment over one of those 99 things. It will only condemn you over the one thing that you messed up. The law just condemns. It never compliments. It never shows you anything good. It never builds you up. It never gives you confidence. The law was given to condemn you and to break you down, to knock you flat of your back. So the only way you could look was up. And sadly, this is the mindset that all of us have. If you do 99 things out of 100 right, we'll focus on the one thing we did wrong and we will have a sin consciousness. That's what the Bible calls condemnation. Over in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2, the latter part of that verse says that because of Jesus, he did pay this sacrifice. It says that we should have no more conscience of sin. You should not be sin conscious. That is one huge statement right there. And you know what? I've been seeking this as strongly as anybody I know. And I can't say that that's true of me. I can say I haven't arrived. I've left. I'm moving towards it. But you know what? It's amazing how we've just been conditioned to focus on our failures and live with a sense of sin. And, and unworthiness minded. And yet we are supposed to have no more conscience of sin. We're supposed to be conscious of our forgiveness and of all of the good things that God has done. 
Philemon chapter one, verse six says that the communication of your faith becomes effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing that is in you in Christ Jesus. Religion teaches, no, the way you get better is to acknowledge all of your mistakes. Realize you're a sinner. Come before God. Oh God, we're so sorry. We're such a sinner saved by grace. And we just mention our sins thinking somehow or another that makes us better. The Bible says you, the way you release your faith and get things to work is by acknowledging the good things that are in you. Find out who you are in Christ. So dwelling in the presence of God, you've got to have these things understood that you are not supposed to be focused on sin the way that the law, the way that the Old Testament focused you on it. You aren't supposed to live with a sin consciousness, an unworthiness consciousness. You've got to understand the new covenant you have to have a revelation of what Jesus has done for you and you need to keep your heart and mind stayed on this goodness of God constantly. You cannot be beating yourself up. That is not gonna help you. You have to get the right message and you have to be building yourself up thinking about God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the way that you love me. You have to be focused on his goodness. Look over here in 1 John Chapter four, and let me share some of these things with you. These, this is what you're supposed to meditate on, to dwell in the presence of God. Remember some of those verses that I used, uh, first uh, chapter of Joshua, chapter one, verse eight, and uh, Psalms chapter one, it talks about that you have to meditate in these things day and night to make your way prosperous and have good success. Here's what you need to be meditating in. First John chapter four, Verse seven says, beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God for God is love. God doesn't just have love, God is love. That is his nature. That is an awesome statement. In this was manifested the love of God. You know, I could spend a lot of time, I wanna say this quickly and move on, but when you start talking about the love of God, that needs to be defined. Because again, religion has polluted what love is. They'll sit there and sing about God loves you and then in the exact same service, the preacher will get up and say, if you do this, God's gonna judge you. He's gonna kill your child. The reason your child is born with retardation is because you aren't seeking him the way that you should. And they mix all of this together and say that that's love. It's a misrepresentation. So most people, when it comes to talking about the love of God, they'll say that God loves them and then they'll still think that God's the one that did things. I was told that God's the one that killed my dad when I was 12 years old, that it was God's will, that God needed him in heaven that this was God that did it. That was a misrepresentation of God. God's not the one that killed my dad. It wasn't his fault. God didn't do it. But see, I was told that God sovereignly controls everything and stuff, and that's a misrepresentation. And if you keep having all of these tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis and, and disasters, acts of God, attributed to God, it gives you a wrong impression of what love is. If you think that that's what love is, well then man, it's gonna mess things up. You have to 
think on love the way that it's defined here. Here is how the love of God tested the love of God towards us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. This is love that God, instead of giving us what we deserved, God put all of our sins and all of the punishment against our sins upon Jesus and he paid for everything that we've ever done. In verse 10, herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Man, I could spend an hour or two on that. Romans chapter five, verse eight says, God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Most people, when they talk about love, they talk about love conditional. You do this, you study the word, go to church, live holy, do everything right, and then God will love you. A love that is tied to your performance isn't love at all. Because you may be better than I am, but all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Satan will take that attitude and point out your sin through the law and keep you from feeling God's love. You may say, well, God loves me or he loves somebody else, but you know you and you know all of your mistakes and you won't experience God's love because you think it's tied to your performance. But this is showing you that God loved us before we loved him. God's love isn't in response to some goodness on our part. God commended his love toward us and then while we were yet sinners, he died for us. God's love for you has nothing to do with you. It's not because you are lovely, it's because he is love. Boy, that's big. You need to meditate on that. See, that will cause you to dwell in that secret place of his presence if you think about that. In verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us of his spirit. Man, every one of these verses are powerful to what I'm talking about, but I'm trying to get on down. So you meditate on those on your own. In verse 14, and we have seen and do testify that the father sent the son to be the savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. I was talking about how do you dwell in the presence of God? You have to dwell in his love. Anytime you get out of believing and ministering to yourself and meditating on the fact that God loves you and instead you start persecuting yourself and telling yourself how could God love me and amplifying your sin and feeling condemned and guilty, you aren't dwelling in God. To dwell in God, you've got to dwell in his love. Man, that is powerful. I wish somehow or another I could talk to every one of you individually and somehow or another reveal to you what your thoughts are. You know, right now, when you're in church, when you're at a Bible conference, most people are on their best behavior. But I'm not talking about Sunday morning or devotion time. I'm saying if I could be with you during the day and know every thought that you have, 
I can guarantee you, most of you beat yourself up all day long, every day, talking about the mistakes that you've made, wishing you could do better, and stuff like this. That is not dwelling in love. That's not dwelling in God. That is not dwelling in this secret place. You are going to have to grab hold of your thoughts, your self-talk. You know, when you're at this conference, I, you know, I emphasize the words that you speak a lot and I talk about things like this. And uh, if you were to come up to me and I was to start talking to you, you would talk to me differently than you talk to yourself. You would say the right thing around me. But when you're by yourself and talk to yourself, most of us say terrible things. You think things about yourself. You envision yourself failing that if you were around me, you'd know I'd say something. So you wouldn't say it to me, but you will say things to yourself. You will think things to yourself that you don't let other people know. For you to dwell in the presence of the Almighty, you are going to have to get to where you take control of your thoughts and keep your thoughts stayed on God and dwelling in love. His love for you instead of feeling rejection and condemnation and these kind of things. If you dwell in the love of God, then you are dwelling in God is what this is saying. If you aren't dwelling on the love of God for you and instead you're feeling guilt and condemnation and unworthiness and failure, you aren't dwelling in God. That would have been a great place for somebody to say amen. amen. Wow. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, we're missing it in this area. I talk to so many people and I, I can tell you, you know, the scripture says that to be carnally minded is death. Romans chapter eight, verse six, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Jesus said in John six sixty three, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So to be spiritually minded is word minded. And people come to me all of the time and tell me what's going on and then act like, I don't know where this came from. Man, I'm doing everything right. And yet I'm getting all these bad results. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, as you think in your heart, that's the way that you are. You may be saying some of the right things because you've heard me or somebody else say that, you know, God wants you well, God wants you to prosper, etc. So you can say the right things but I can guarantee you if you, are, if you are seeing negative things produced in your life, it's because that's the way that you have thought in your life, in your heart. And some people think, oh, no, that's not true. Yes, it is true. You at your core are not thinking something right because if you think according to God and dwell in him, you will experience the victory and the power it says that to be spiritually minded is life and peace. It's just like if I plant tomatoes, I don't get peas. Everything produces after its own kind. If you are reaping sickness, it's because you've thought sickness. It may not be that you've thought, all right, I want to be sick. But you've thought things that allow sickness to dominate you. Such things as, well, I'm only human. I'm just a man. It's flu season. I got to get sick because it's flu season. You may not have sat there and have thought, I want the flu, but you've thought things that made you inferior to flu and that made you only human. You were denying and not focused on who you are in Christ, that no plague will come nigh your dwelling. And you have thought things that made you susceptible to Satan stealing your health. 
And so you've got to grab control of these thoughts. You got to get to where your self-talk, what you say about yourself is what God says about you. And I've tried to summarize the entire Bible tonight, which is a big deal. <laughs> but the Old Testament is where God's wrath was revealed. You've got to get this new covenant mentality that all of God's wrath against your sin was placed on Jesus. And now God isn't angry at you. God is pleased at you. John 4, 24 says, God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You have to approach God through your spirit and it's the spirit, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that was changed. Old things passed away, all things became new. You are completely brand new in your spirit. You are without sin in your spirit. Your body sins, your mind and emotions sin, but your spirit doesn't sin. God's a spirit and you have to approach him through your spirit. And if you are approaching him through your spirit, then you will dwell in his love, not feel the wrath of God, not feel condemned and not feel unworthy because your spirit isn't unworthy. It's been cleansed. You got a new spirit. Amen. Look over here at Zephaniah chapter three. As Greg says, I've got the airport inside. We may have to circle for a while, but it's... So Zephaniah chapter three, I know that's y'all's favorite book in the Bible. Some of you can't even find it. It's on page 734. Look at this in verse 17. It says, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save, he will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. If you take this in its context, the whole book of Zephaniah is pronouncing judgment against the Israelites because they had rejected God. This is during the time when their sins had separated them from God and they were bearing God's wrath. And so the whole book of Zephaniah is talking about their captivity, but at the end he comes back and he says, regardless of what you've done, God is gonna redeem you back to himself. And he started prophesying a day where they would once again be back in union with him. And of course that's now fulfilled through Jesus. Jesus has reconciled us unto God by not imputing our sins to us, but imputing them uh, to himself. And so this is speaking about the day that you and I live in, even though it was written in the old covenant, it was a prophecy of what's coming. And it says here that he is, um, He's mighty in the midst of us. He will save. He's already done that through Jesus. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in his love. This word rest means to abide. God doesn't just love you at times when everything is good. God loves you all of the time. He rests in his love. It's where he lives. God is never the one that's angry at you. That's an amazing statement. And he will joy over thee with singing. That word joy, the second word joy in this verse, there's two different words used for joy here. And the second one means to twirl violently and to dance. This shows that this love of God is not something that he just, you know, he feels obligated. He has pity on us because after all we were his creation and he feels some responsibility. So he loves us. No, he's passionate about us. He's twirling violently and dancing over us. 
Did you know that that's happening right now? Some of you, well, I can't see it. That goes back to what I was talking about last night. We're trying to figure these things out in the physical realm. You've got to look in the word of God and you've got to let the word of God open up your heart and understand these things. But this is happening. You know, when we first got started in ministry, we had a little group in Seagaville, Texas, and we had probably not more than five or 10 during the whole two years, except when we fed people free, they came in and we could draw more than that. But coming to church normally it was five or 10 people. And we would sit around for hours and sing. And we didn't have any electricity in the place. The, it wasn't my place. The woman that we were using, she didn't pay her bills, didn't have enough money. They turned the electricity off. We had uh, uh, electrical spools for tables and wine bottles and candles. And that's what we used. And anyway, we would sit around and sing for hours. And one of those times during that singing, Jamie had a vision. And she saw angels twirling and dancing over us. That's exactly what this is talking about. And you know what? She only saw that one time, but all of the time. You know, today in here during the services, man, I was so touched by the Lord. I guarantee you the power of God was here. Angels were rejoicing over us. I don't know if Ted Mel is in here now, but Ted Mel is one of our employees. He's, he was in our first year graduating class and he was in one of these services. I forgot exactly when, but in the last few months. And he saw angels here that were just taking our praise and worship and like a lightning bolt going from down here up. They were just ascending through this place up to heaven and taking our praises up to God. I think it was Carly. I don't know where Carly is, but she's usually in here. Carly saw angels sitting up on these beams. I've never seen any of that stuff, but I believe it because the word says that the angels rejoice over us. God twirls over us. These are the kind of things, see, that if you want to dwell in the, in the secret place of the Most High, this is the way you need to think. You don't just go imagining whatever you want, but you take the scripture and this says that he will save us. Are you saved? Well, then here's how he feels. He's resting in his love. He never gets out of it. He is twirling over you and dancing over you and he loves you. And you need to go through your day thinking on those things, dwelling upon this. And when you dwell in God's love, then you are dwelling in God. First John 4, 16. This is how you do this. You've got to have the right opinion of God. You can't Keep your mind stayed on him in fear and in condemnation and in guilt, but you have to think about his goodness, thank him for all of these things. And if you do that, and if you keep your mind stayed upon him, then you'll be in perfect peace. If you constantly are focused on how much God loves you, then when other people criticize you, you know what? It's not that big of a deal because God Almighty is dancing and twirling over you. You get a vision of that and just go to thinking about that and then look at that person who's mad at you and it's no big deal. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, this is what dwelling in the secret place of the Most High is all about, is about keeping your mind stayed upon Him, meditating upon these things, giving yourself wholly to it, and not just random thoughts about God or any religious thought about God, but specifically the new covenant about how that God has placed all of his judgment for your sins upon Jesus, how he's redeemed you. There is no wrath from God against you. And you dwell on that and you think on that. 
I guarantee you, it won't take long thinking about that before you'll start thanking God. You will have thanksgiving come up on the inside of you. You will start praising him. Awesome things. I remember one time in Dallas that I was meditating on these things and I went and I had to go get gas. And this is, you know, back when they would pump gas for you. Some of you don't even know that that ever happened. <laughs> but this is back when they used to pump your gas for you. And anyway, it was raining cats and dogs. It was a major storm. And so I just got out and started filling up my own gas tank to save the attendant, uh, the effort. And anyway, he came out and he says, oh, I'll do that. And I said, uh, no, no, that's fine. I'll do it. And he says, but it's a terrible day. And I said, oh, it's an awesome day. And I didn't mean to say it. I didn't plan on it. I just was thinking about how awesome God was. And I was standing there getting drenched. But you know what? I was just thinking about the goodness of God before I could think of it. I said, it's an awesome day. And he just looked at me like, what's wrong with you? And I had to witness to him and tell him about Jesus to keep him from thinking I was crazy. <laughs> but you know what? You can get so into just loving God that even if things aren't going your way this day, it's still an awesome day just because God loves you. You dwell in the love of God and constantly think about this and minister it to yourself regardless. And you know what? It'll keep you from being depressed and discouraged. I had somebody come up today. I forgot now what it was, but they said something that what, I don't know, it was something bad, maybe about the weather or something. And uh, anyway, I said, you know what? In the light of eternity, it's not much of a big deal. And I said, when we're in eternity, a thousand years from now, who's going to care whether it's raining today or what's happening, you know? And you go to thinking things like that and thinking about God and thinking about you're going to spend eternity with him. It doesn't matter what's going on today. It's going to pass. That's one of my favorite scriptures. It came to pass. That's why it came was so that it could pass. Amen. It's going to pass. And you can just look at things differently if you keep your mind stayed upon God. You know, we've been talking today about this building and man, we're just about out of money on this thing. I'm believing for a miracle. But if worse comes to worse and if we have to stop for three months or six months, it's not a big deal. God still loves me. We will get it done. It will happen. And it'll work out just perfect. You don't have to worry or obsess about anything. If you just understand that God loves you, what compares to God loving you? Nothing. Man, if I never got that building built, that's no big deal as long as God still loves me and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's going to love me and I'll still be good. Amen. I've got people here in this town that don't like me and say bad things about me, but God loves me. And that's how I keep myself going is just thinking about the fact that God loves me. You dwell in love and you'll dwell in God. Isn't that simple? So I know I've shared a lot tonight. I've covered more than any one person could comprehend unless you already had a lot of these revelations because this is just way off the charts from what most people think. So I've given you a lot to think on and study. You ought, to, you ought to go get some of the materials. You ought to go to meditating on this. But if you could understand, I've got a series, you know, on spirit, soul, and body, eternal redemption, and just so many other things. If you could understand these truths that I've talked about and dwell 
in the love of God and never get under guilt and condemnation and feeling unworthy and like, how could God love you? You don't even love yourself. If you could get out of that mindset and dwell in the love of God and just meditate on it day and night, I guarantee you, you would dwell in the secret place of the Almighty and then all of those promises, all of those benefits would come to pass in your life. But you can't just have a little devotion. You can't visit there. You've got to dwell there. You've got to take up permanent residence and control your self-talk the way you talk to yourself and the way you meditate on God. And you do that, and I guarantee you, it'll change your life. As you think in your heart, that's the way you'll be. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Hallelujah. So, Father, we give you praise and thanks for what Jesus has done. Thank you for the new covenant. And, Father, you said that the Holy Spirit was sent to give us understanding of this, to reveal these truths to us, to show us Jesus and what he's done for us. So we welcome the ministry of the Holy Spirit here tonight. We welcome you to reveal these things to us and that, Father, you would help us to gain control of our self-thoughts not just the things that come out of our mouth, but the way we think in our heart. That, Father, we would go to experiencing your pleasure and your love, that we would let you love us. Psalms 35, 27 says, Yea, let all those who favor my cause say continually, let God be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. You need to let that happen. You are the one that has to let it happen. Let the love of God be magnified in your life. Father, we just make a commitment to do that right now. You know, I'm going to ask you to do something right now. And the reason I ask for these things publicly is because the Bible says faith without works is dead. You've got to do something. You can't just sit there and give mental assent. It needs to be something that you act on. And so I hate to minister on something like this without giving you an opportunity to act. And I felt like the Lord spoke to me right now that there's people in here that you maybe know some of the right things. Maybe some of these things I said tonight are not brand new to you, but the truth is you don't dwell in this. You are critical of yourself. You have a sin consciousness. You constantly live there. You're your own worst enemy. To a degree, that's true of everybody, but many of us have, have seen this. We're attacking it. We're dealing with it, and we're gaining victory over it. But there's some people here that, I mean, you just wallow in guilt and condemnation. You, you speak badly about yourself. You think poorly. You just can't see God loving you. I believe that you can do that so long that it becomes a stronghold in your life. That's what it says, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, that the weapons of our warfare will tear down these strongholds and thoughts that exalts themselves against the knowledge of God. And it'll bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And so I felt like the Lord spoke to me that there's some people here tonight that this is a stronghold in your life. You do not picture yourself well. It goes along with what Greg was saying today. Greg's message today fits perfectly with what I'm trying to get across tonight. You've got to see yourself not as an orphan or as slave, but as a son. You've got to develop this son mentality. You've got to see yourself forgiven 
And if you have a stronghold, if you are bound by those things, I believe that there's an anointing of God here tonight to break that and to get you so that you can start renewing your mind. But some of you have gone so far in this direction, you need help. You need something broke. You need a stronghold broken. So I want to ask if this is, if this is something that just controls you and dominates you, if it's a stronghold in your life that you see yourself poorly, you speak bad about yourself, you are not dwelling in God's love. I want you to just humble yourself right now and stand and I want to pray for you and we're going to believe God to break this stronghold. If that's you, I want you to just stand right where you are. Again, all of us to a degree can respond, but I'm talking to those who this is really a stronghold. You need our prayers and our help right now to break this stronghold in your life. Thank you, Jesus. You know, this is a lot of people right here. This says a lot about why you've experienced a lot of the problems that you have. There's no condemnation. It's just explanation. If you've understood and if you've responded because this is really a stronghold and you are not dwelling in thoughts of God's goodness and love and acceptance and instead you're dwelling under condemnation and guilt and stuff. This is the reason that things aren't working. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So praise God. The Bible says when you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, he will lift you up. It says humble yourself. Confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another and you, may, you will be healed. So we're going to pray right now. And I believe because you've humbled yourself, God's going to break this stronghold in your life. And praise God, I believe you're going to start seeing yourself differently. Amen. I've still got some people standing up. I know somebody's thinking, can't you have everybody bow their head and close their eyes? No, I want you to stand up while everybody's head is up and their eyes are open, amen. You need to humble yourself. I'm gonna pray this won't work if you're seated. You gotta stand up to get it. See, there's some people standing up. You were gonna bootleg this prayer. And you got to just humble yourself. Stand up and receive it right now. Anybody else? Thank you, Jesus. Father, I thank you for all these people that have humbled themselves. Father, we just thank you. We believe that there's no condemnation. There's no malice from you that you point these things out to help us, not to hurt us. So, Father, we receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save our souls. We humble ourselves, and Father, we just confess to you that we have been hard on ourselves. We've been condemning ourselves, living with guilt, condemnation instead of dwelling in your love for us. And so, Father, we've confessed it openly, publicly. We've forsaken it. And now, Father, we, we draw on these spiritual weapons that 2 Corinthians 10 is talking about. We release these weapons right now, and we cast out guilt condemnation, hatred for ourself, anger, bitterness, rejection. We cast all of these things out right now in the name of the Lord Jesus. We break these strongholds, cast those things down in the mighty name of Jesus. Holy Spirit, I loose you to flow through every single person here that's standing. Father, I believe that right now you are breaking these strongholds and that, Father, the Holy Spirit is release, releasing and revealing this unconditional love of God 
how much you love us in spite of our failures, in spite of all of our sins. Father, thank you for revealing and releasing this love in people right now. Father, I believe that there's going to be a change that from this time on, people are not going to have the same attitude. We break demonic strongholds that were raised in their mind, things that go back to childhood and things that happened to them. Father, if there was abuse, all of these things, these things that have been planted in people's hearts and minds, I believe that your Holy Spirit is just rooting them out right now and in placing in its place your love. And Father, right now, we just speak the love of Jesus towards every one of these, that the love of God would abound right now. Acceptance. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I pray that your love and acceptance would be like a tidal wave, a tsunami that would just overwhelm whatever it is that's caused them to have all of these other feelings and emotions. Father, we release this in the mighty, mighty name of Jesus. You know, I want those of you who are standing right now to keep standing, okay? And I want the rest of you to just be God extended towards them right now. And I want you to get up and just love on them. Hug somebody. Tell them that, man, God loves you. And this is the way we're going to end our service tonight is just showing the love of God. Find somebody who is standing and minister God's love to them and praise God you're dismissed. I'm going to ask our prayer ministers to come down here to the front. And if you want prayer for anything, these prayer ministers are going to be down here to pray with you. If you feel like God touched you tonight and you just want somebody to agree with you over anything, feel free to come down here and let one of our prayer ministers pray for you. Praise God, I believe we are going to dwell in the secret place of the Most High. Praise God. Thanks for coming. Remember, we'll be back at 845 for praise and worship in the morning. So be